Hey guys, Brian here with a quick note before we get started on this story. Around 18 minutes in on this, uh, language gets a little salty as we're fired up in, in responding to what happened. So for the tender ears out there that are going to be bothered by hearing the some F-bombs, just a heads up on that. And yeah, you know, I do sprinkle some, some shizzles around here and there in, in my storytelling as well not really knowing who my audience is. Um, if this is something that really bothers you or you want to share this with kids or whatnot, you know, let me know. Drop me a line and tell me that because it's just kind of the way that we talk and tell stories, but it's also interested to hear your thoughts. So uh, enjoy the story. Thanks for listening. I met Adam in 97 or so when the six foot seven dude showed up on our rental house doorstep, bashfully introduced himself as a friend of a friend of another roommate, and now, if everything was cool with us, our new roommate. We struck up conversation quickly, inevitable when a person is unloading all his belongings, and thus a complete tell of who he is and what his life revolves around. I recall a lot of fishing gear, fly tying materials, and gun cases. It turned out, that my new roommate was an incredibly skilled fly fishing guide on the Deschutes and other Central Oregon waters. And I loved to fly fish, although I was terrible. And Adam happened to be quite keen to learn about archery and elk hunting, which I'd been infatuated with and become quite capable at myself. The future was bright for us both. And so for many years to come, and still to this day, Adam and I would kick around rivers, mountains, and deserts of the Northwest in search of critters, fish, and all the fun that a couple buddies could find. For many of these adventures, I'd pack along my old man's hand-me-down Sony High 8 camcorder and rolled tape for what we considered nothing more than home videos. Steelheading from the John Day to the North Umpqua and then to British Columbia, chucker hunting majestic Steens Mountains, and deer, elk, and antelope from all corners of central and eastern Oregon. In the fall of 2000, prevailing winds carried me east to Boise for a new life in a new city, region, and culture altogether. Boise had everything to offer that I loved about Bend, although at a much greater scale. Bigger mountains, rivers, and deserts, with timber to the north all the way to Canada, in deserts all the way to the south to Mexico, and a majority of which was public. Not to mention all the city and social life that a 21-year-old could ask for, and actual places to eat after 10 o'clock at night. Let's fast forward the tape now to 2003. I'd spent the previous summer working for Idaho Parks and Recreation in a position called Trail Ranger. Two-person teams of trail rangers work aboard loaded-down XR400s for eight-day shifts throughout the regions of Idaho, clearing single-track trails through the forested mountains, wild and raging freestone rivers, and deep into elk country that my mind had previously only imagined. During this tour of duty, I'd had the pleasure of sampling elk habitat of all sorts, and came to find a few areas in particular especially tempting. 
Eventually, following this broad survey of South and Central Idaho, several steep miles downhill and into the Frank Church River of No Return Wilderness, I discovered a complex of black timber canyons buttressed by steep razorback ridgelines. Settled in a webbed saddle between these canyons was a barren grassy knob which served as something as a hub for the area. In one particular panel of lodgepole pine, shaded and in the lee of a steep northeast exposure, I counted 86 rubs in less than an acre. I remembered this number specifically because it reminded me of a crusty tavern back in Redmond, Oregon called the 86 Corral Club. And so I named this spot the 86 Rub Hub. I'd had an epic season opening trip at the 86 Rub Hub. Encounters with multiple mature herd bulls, including a stunning non-typical I came to name Lefty and know well over the several seasons in the Frank Church. I'd also had a razor-close encounter with an impressively sturdy 6x6. So thick and heavy-horned, his polished antlers carried mass out to the ivory tips, reminding me more of broom ends as opposed to finger-like antler tips. But now a few weeks later and midway through the September archery elk season, I was in the bubbling situation of introducing my best friend and hunting partner to what I described as the best elk hunting place I'd ever found. Walking Adam down the trail, gesturing this way and that, and accompanied by deliberate whispers bounding with enthusiasm, the bobbing beams of our headlamps approached the rub hub. Daylight broke over the eastern skyline, which was made up of wolf fang peaks and layers of horizons too numerous to count. We dropped off the spine of the ridge and into the drainage that I'd called Millville. Elk sign was prominent in the mix of thick fir, jack pine, and downfall. I was absolutely certain we had elk all around us, but in the falling thermals, we needed to descend a ways down and off the ridge to give ourselves some acreage that would not be spoiled by our scent, which was inevitably drifting down the canyon like ink blots in a draining tub of water. I'd enjoyed great success in calling and fantastic encounters during my first hunts around the hub. From opening day on August 30th, I'd found bulls willing to respond to my wide-ranging menu of vocal offerings. We were, after all, miles from the nearest road, and for that matter, thousands of feet lower. And, of course, this was in the heyday of wolf reintroduction, so many bitter hunters were home crying in their beer that they could no longer shoot elk off their ATVs in the flat, open meadows where they'd once imagined so much entitlement and success. Indeed, the presence of wolves was confirmed by tracks in the snow and ghost-like howling on occasion. And I, too, could detect a change in the elk behavior. However, there now seemed to be a concentration of elk pushed into the very steep and thick areas like the rub hub, something I was not at all bothered to discover and, frankly, felt quite fortunate for what I viewed as a new advantage, not in spite of, but because of wolves. As my guest, and let's face it, the big spender given that Adam had ponied up for a non-resident tag, I was stoked to occupy the role of caller as Adam would tank point as the shooter. My calling position in multiple person elk hunting scenario is instinctively enjoyable for me. It's so fun to have the freedom of extended distance and concealment to move freely while making all the rambunctious racket I love to employ in my calling routines. I'd chirp and mew as cows using my cupped hands to direct sounds in all different directions. 
I was free to thump the end of my grunt tube simulating glunking from a rutting bull. I'd break branches to rub against trees, even toss rocks and lift and drop logs on the ground to sound like hooves stomping around. roll tape to capture the scene and save forever in lousy footage, awful picture, and audio with all the crispness of a half-tuned clock radio. I led us into the guts of Millville and set up as if this were a predator stand, meaning that we simply walked quietly into an area that we liked without calling, then established our respective positions. As shooter, Adam found an area where he had decent upwind visibility at least for one shooting lane, which sounds crazy, one shooting lane. But this area is thick, with few areas offering field of view, much less shooting distances past 20 or 30 yards. Where there wasn't a tree trunk growing upward, there's one laying sideways, and anywhere between was packed with brush. Pure shittiness for bipods like us but the realization of opportunities before us fueled positive vibes as we began the setup with eye contact, thumbs up, and a nod. I don't recall the exact play-by-play, but basically within a few minutes I got a bite on my Elk Talk offer. And within the span of half an hour or so, I could tell from our vocal exchanges that the bull was right on top of Adam. I'd drop back a bit to watch down an opening behind me so I could no longer see Adam to know precisely what was happening. But sure enough, the report of a huge animal crashing through the trees and brush confirmed that one way or another, the two of them had met. And one way or another, the bull had left in a hurry. Which can mean two things. He fled fast because Adam's arrow had left his bowstring, or because the bull caught wind or sight of something dangerous and carried the male out of there in search of safer smelling air. As a caller, a highlight is when the shooter returns to discuss what took place during the calling episode. It's always so cool to hear the same experience recounted from two different fore and aft perspectives. The first thing I watch for when the shooting is walking back is of course facial expression, but also if an arrow is missing from the quiver as a confirmation of whether a shot was taken or not. As Adam pushed his way through the brush and into view, his eyes were bright, but his quiver was full. Was it? Here's a 300. Six by six. Six by six. Six by six. He came in. He was close to you, huh? Yeah, he spooked on my draw. The bull had come in right on top of Adam, but actually spooked as he tried to draw his bow in an awkward position. A frustrating outcome to what could have been the best bowl to date for either of us, just hours into our team effort here at the 86 Rub Hub. So close, yet far too soon to be overly discouraged by the fluke derailment. The encounter was thrilling and without a question confidence inspiring given our commitment to drop so far in elevation, knowing what it would take just to get back up to camp. But now that we'd pretty well fished Millville up to this point, I suggested we climb up and over the ridgeline and drop down into the other side to make some casts into new water. I was certain there were many elk around for us to find, and that was, after all, 
just a 300 bull. By lunchtime, we topped out and made our way to a prominent vantage overlooking another canyon that we eventually and appropriately named the Man Show. From this location, response to our calls could be heard from what seemed like miles, like a mile upstream to our left and two miles downstream to our right. The canyon we were perched on the cusp of was daunting. 2,000 feet deep in a perpendicular cross-section from where we stood, and over 4,000 to the absolute bottom, and every foot of it steep as hell. Those parts that weren't cliffed clung to stability on the lip of gravity's vacuum. Looking straight across, features on the other side appeared deceivingly accessible. But if you took careful measure of how deep the canyon was versus how wide it was, you'd realize that the distance to the other side was a fraction of the depth of this canyon, a V so steep and narrow you couldn't even see the bottom until it was too late. It was the kind of place where if you heard a bugle on the other side and you knew any better, you'd shake your head and say, thanks, but no thanks. We'd developed something of a signature fighting cow sequence that for years had worked well for us. Whether we stumbled upon something authentic in elk lexicon or simply thought it sounded funny and was amusing to play, several bulls on the opposite side replied to my broadcast. Anyone care to let me know why responding bulls are always on the other side? Anyhow, of all of them, one in particular was biting real hard. It was one in the afternoon at this point, smack dab in the middle of nap time for any self-respecting elk any day of the year. But with each variation of ultra-high-pitched estrus calls I sent into the air, the bull fired back with bugles, each more intense than the one before it. A few volleys of this dialogue, and Adam and I were both buckling down our backpack straps, tightening the knots on our boots, and nodding in agreement with each chuckle and grunt that we needed to haul ass down this canyon now. I recall telling Adam in a sarcastic tone, hey, that last bowl was only 300, but this guy's 340. Way better option anyway. I think we were both just beside ourselves to be out here chasing mature, screaming bulls and completely blind to the consequences of engaging elk in this life or death contest in the wilderness so rugged, big, and wild. We dropped over the edge with leaps and bounds. Striding down the steep slope, we moved quickly as possible, yet all the while careful not to dislodge rocks or anything that would roll down the hill and turn into a goddamn avalanche. Regardless, Approximately midway down, the bull heard us and screamed a bugle across to our side in almost, well, no, I'd actually say an actual throwing down of the gauntlet. Adam's face was beaming as he barely contained in whisper, Homie wants to partay. I don't recall if we'd made any bull sounds at this point or not, but whether the bull thought our sounds were just from the sassy talking estrus cow already a bit tipsy making her way down to him, or a newly arrived herd, it was clear that he wanted to engage. The bull was maybe a quarter of the way up the other side, and when we reached the creek bottom where we needed to cross, the gravity of what we'd gotten ourselves into may have bruised our bubbles a bit. The creek was sunk into a deeply cut channel, absolutely overgrown in brush and filthy with downfall and avalanche debris. Climbing on all fours, we held bows for each other between hands and knees, crawling, clawing into the dirt, 
grasping for roots or handholds to get up and out the opposite bank. Bear grass is slick as shit. It was an absolute cluster getting across. But once we had the creek behind us, we seemed to float up the other side, even while wiping cobwebs and sweat from our faces every few yards. Scanning carefully and measuring the distance to where we'd figured we'd need to set up, we entered the red zone and called our play. Adam would advance a tad further and set up in the tall trees above us where he had at least broken visibility up to 70 or so yards. I'd drop back and maneuver as needed depending on how the bull responded once I resumed our signature Esther's calling. As expected, the bull was hot to trot. He immediately bugled back as soon as the high-pitched sounds left my cupped, then fanning left hand. In my other hand, videotaped rolled calmly inside the camcorder. I was reading each sound like a football coordinator and scrambling backwards down the steep timbered slope. The bull was coming in with certainty, and my job was to keep track of the wind and steer the bull's direction. He was entirely tuned in to me and every sound I made. I dropped back and out of sight of Adam now, but I had to keep reference of where he was so I could drag this bull right over the top of him, or actually broadside right in front of him, ideally. At one point, it seemed like momentum had stalled. A few minutes had passed without hearing the bull, so I opted for a trick play. I turned downhill and crashed through the brush, jumping, thumping, kicking everything in sight to make clear that I was running away. I wanted Homie to think that I was another bull who had gotten wind of him and was losing his stomach for a fight, and in doing so, creating an opportunity for Homie to swoop down and snag this dirty-mouthed slutty cow who had sounded so ready to party. I came to a sudden stop, gripping a tree trunk to keep from slipping the final distance down the creek. As I listened hard as I could, hoping the commotion had stirred the pot and drawn the bull the final distance needed for Adam to have a shot. A chatter of chirps and mews fluttered around in the timber above us, indicating that Homie was indeed a herd bull and his harem of cows were buying into this false dialogue that I'd been peddling. And then, unmistakable sounds tumbled down the hill. High stepping through the brush, Adam emerged from the curtain of vegetation. His headnet was still pulled up over his face, but his eyes were the size of ping pong balls as he staggered down and collapsed next to me. up on a harvest of this kind is a moment of reckoning. He's down. It's reality setting in, paired with something like opening a present that you may have only caught a quick glimpse of. Oh, up there. He went up. Look at that. Oh my god. 
But when you first set eyes on your newly acquired possession, a cog of wildlife and wilderness that you've worked so hard for, that sensation, that reality and emotion can take time to set in. And almost always, ground shrinkage sets in. But not this time. That's a nice ball. He is huge. Looks like he crashed and rolled. Oh my god. This was the first time that either of us had been in the company of a genuinely big bull on the ground. And Homie was big by every measure. There was no ground shrinkage. Look at all this. Look at the, look at the bases on him. Oh, oh my god. Is such look at this freaking scar on his head. Look at the, look at the, the stuff in his antlers. Those bases are huge. He is just so heavy. In fact, we were in complete awe as we stumbled around the imperial bull, resting up against a tree trunk that stopped its roll from going all the way to the creek. <laughs> oh, thanks a lot, Brian. Oh my God. <laughs> look at how thick just this G1 is. Oh. Hey, look at he hit his eye running out. Or maybe he done that. Oh, but he did that fighting. It's all swollen there. Wow. Is that the kill whiskey? That is the last time I filled this was after, well, the year after uh, got the bull in the jump. No way. So that whiskey's three years old? Yukon. Oh, yeah. Huge smiles, high fives, and shots of kill whiskey have their moments in the celebration process. Then the stark, stiffening reality of the oh shit factor sets in like a horror movie fog. I'm not sure if either of us were keeping track but we both knew that we were in deep. We worked as a team to take the bull apart, one massive piece at a time, and I can recall myself thinking, I wonder if we're ever gonna make it out of here. The weight of each piece, coupled with looking upward to where we had to go and recalling the absolute tangle of undergrowth paired with the black diamond slope we'd so foolishly bounced down like a couple neon clowns in a 90s ski film, had a sincere lump in my throat forming. I lashed the first hindquarter to my cheap-as-hell backpack, which was intended to haul little more than trapper keepers and a skateboard. When Adam wasn't looking, I gave my pack a lift and groaned inside. Holy shit. We'd packed elk out together in the past, but only young raghorns, likely half the mass of homie here. As the work of field dressing this magnum bowl neared its completion, we joked lightheartedly about the 36 hours ahead of us, by far the most daunting endeavor in either of our lives. Humor, of course, is a lousy veil for fear, and I tried hard to be extra funny. If you've ever been part of carrying an elk out of the woods on your back, one load at a time, you can relate to this story. And for those who've done so in a variety of circumstances, be it the distance of the haul, the number of trips, treachery of the terrain, or whatever, you can certainly relate. It is something like a brotherhood that others can connect with. But each and every experience is different. And what sorts of elements combine to create a hunt from start to finish, year after year, will always vary. As do the attitudes and perspectives we take with us into those hunts and the ones we take away from them. We did, in fact, make it out of the man show alive, eventually. Getting back to our pup tent and makeshift camp the last time was a feeling like none other. 
Want to talk about how to really enjoy cocktails around a raging campfire? Well, actually, it was the next night we did all of that, as we were too wiped out to do anything but collapse into our sleeping bags when we returned. But gazing at the rack of such a bull over a campfire, unwinding and retelling the series of events from our own perspectives, dumped fuel on our genuine lust for backcountry hunting adventure like this. Even those fireside memories of us recounting the memories are still solid gold. And of course, as every antler junkie knows, the ritual and symbolism of pulling out the measuring tape, calling out numbers, and jotting them down on a paper plate. I mean, it's so cool to end up with a critter worth scoring and putting a number to an animal, although arguably vain by some standards, does indeed establish relatable, factual measure of achievement. We both took great pride in our scoring abilities. As roommates, we'd flip through magazines and quiz each other all the time. Okay, what does this bull score? We became quite skilled at computing Boone and Crockett's score of racks with a quick glance. So-called field scoring, judging a rack score on the hoof can be quite tricky. As you heard, with Adam's quick glance of Holmey during his shot, he declared the bull was in fact 340, referencing when I declared the bugling bull in the man show was 340. We broke out in laughter and high fives as we tallied the actual stats of homie's rack when measured down to the eighth of an inch, totaled a gross score of, you guessed it, 340 inches. Homie was indeed a 340 bull. And actually ended up being the large, heavy, broomed-off 6x6 that I'd seen on my first day in the man show. This hunt formed many sturdy layers within my own character and experience as a hunter. I'm sure Adam can say the same. I like to look back on that hunt now and imagine what it would be like to tell ourselves then that the hunt we'd share a few seasons later would push us even further down that same canyon. It may have scared us away from the Idaho wilderness altogether. But obviously, that's another story for another time. And if there's a point to this story, it's simply the joy of reliving and sharing excruciating challenge with equal satisfaction and reward. And the empowerment that such challenges give us as we look back at what we're capable of, both as individuals and as a team. It's a great motivation to go big, hunt hard, and do it soon because youth lends itself to poor decisions, decisions you'll eventually frown on as mistakes, and mistakes always look best in the rearview mirror. Thanks for listening and coming along. Quick PS here, I hope you've enjoyed this story of backcountry adventure, the man show, and, and Homie the 340 Bull. If you'd like to see bits of this footage of Homie and many hunts that followed, use your Google powers to search Endless September video to see my 2014 Archery Elk film. Oh, and please, if you've enjoyed this story and want more, check out all the previous episodes on the Skylines podcast homepage and subscribe and forward this link to your friends. Thank you.